I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Okay, so when I was a sophomore... I took Psychology 101 at Appleton High School, and I think that our teacher's name was Mr. Preston. You remember my sister, Brett. Anyway, Mr. Preston taught us, and I think this was in one of our textbooks, that if you do something that, like, lean towards danger, that gets your adrenaline flowing, that feels extreme, it will bond you to a person, and you will both feel very charged. I took that, noted it, and ran with it. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Today, on our last full episode of season two, I'm going to explore stories about love that flowered in moments of high adrenaline. Stories of people coming together or being thrust together in times of stress and danger. I wanted to understand what that feels like and how you build a relationship from it. Now, unlike the stories we'll hear later, my sister's tale does not involve any real danger. But she did take that high school psych lesson to heart in a very Brett kind of way. After Brett graduated, when she was about 19, there was this guy she wanted pretty badly. He was my age, a lacrosse player, beautiful skin, nice hair at the time, delicious. I don't know, I had a problem. He was like a drug. It was an addiction situation, and I was doing anything I could. They had hooked up in the past but never slept together, which Brett wants very much. They're hanging out one day with a group of friends, and this guy proposes a trip to King's Dominion, this amusement park in Virginia. A light bulb goes off in Brett's head. And I thought, okay, I got one job, two jobs. I got to get him there, and I've got to get us both sitting next to each other on the Grizzly, which was the wooden roller coaster. The idea is that, like, it's going to rattle your damn brains. I was looking at him a lot to see, like, how scared he was and how much fun he was having. And I remember just grabbing that thigh and his arms over and over again, like, Daddy, save me. You know, like, I just, I was just having the time of my life. Brett's little ploy? It works. That shared adrenaline rush brings them closer. Later that night, they're back at a friend's apartment. Somehow he got himself a hairbrush. It could have been mine. It could have been in the bathroom. At that time, I didn't care, you know. And I remember, and, and uh, he brushed my hair. He was brushing my hair like a girlfriend would have brushed my hair. And it's sweet, and it's tender, and he's touching it, and he's brushing it. And you know what else, Meredith? He was doing it in front of people. Everyone knows that we're going to spend the night there together. And he's like just touching me and brushing my hair. And everyone is just sitting around and drinking beer and smoking and talking. And I remember being so happy. I mean, so happy. Was it effective in bonding you? Because it sounds like what you were trying to do was bond him to you more emotionally, actually, than sexually. So did it work in that way? All I know is I remember his energy. And not only was it sexually heightened, for the first time, he was sweet and loving. And that, even that profound shift on that one night, was enough to keep me hanging on. And like our weird torrid affair went on for years and years after, so yes. Yes. 
Not to diminish Brett's fear of wooden roller coasters or anything, but what if the danger at the birth of a relationship is, like, real? Rick and Valerie Nirenberg got their start in the frigid waters of the Atlantic. And not like the beach or anything. No, they were scuba diving more than 100 feet below the surface. And then Rick started running out of air. Let me set the scene for you. Back in the early 1990s, before they know each other, Valerie and Rick are training to be divers at separate swimming pools in New York. They meet on a trip to Montauk, out on the tip of Long Island, where both are trying to get their open water certification. We didn't really talk very much because it was cold water, and we had three quarter-inch thick wetsuits, and I could see that he had beautiful blue eyes, and he could see I had very nice green eyes, but that was about it. They have a date back in New York, but then Valerie and a friend leave for a diving trip to the Cayman Islands. Valerie and Rick plan to reconnect when she returns. So when I got back, I had made about... I don't know, 20 dives, and I wasn't an expert, but I kind of knew what I was doing. And we agreed that our first official date would be going on a dive off the coast of New Jersey. We went to do what's called a wreck dive, and it was a sunken ship off the coast of Point Pleasant. And East Coast water is very cold, very poor visibility, maybe three to five feet. I was a little freaked out because I don't like the dark very much. There are three of them diving together within a larger dive group. There's Valerie, Rick, and, because Rick is still a newbie, an instructor. She's a woman about Valerie's height. We basically jumped in the water, and it's deep and dark and cold and actually quite exciting in a certain way. I am not, wasn't as good at controlling my air as others, so I was going through it a little faster than other people. He moved his arms a lot, and he was going up and down a lot, which happens with new divers. And so he used up more air than I did because he was less efficient with his body movements. Then I pointed to his wrist where you see your air monitor. See how much air you have in your tank? Is your air okay with a thumbs up? And he didn't really answer. And I saw that his air was extraordinarily low for being 104 feet below the ocean surface and that he probably wasn't having enough air to safely go back. There's only one thing to do at this point. They have to immediately, but slowly, head back to the surface while doing buddy breathing. That's where two people take turns breathing from one air tank. In this case, Valerie's air tank. I don't know that it's that dangerous, but it's dangerous enough. I mean, that's not what you usually routinely do during a scuba dive. But because everyone looks the same underwater, Rick assumes that this woman, who has come to his rescue, is his instructor, not his date. We went up about 50 feet, and you can't go up right away. You have to go up slowly. I took the regulator out of his mouth to buddy breathe, and he went bye-bye again, and he starts going up again. I was like, this is really not safe. What is this dude doing? You know, this is crazy. They don't know this at the time, but Rick is suffering from nitrogen narcosis. It's something that happens to divers' brains in deep water. It makes them start acting like they're drunk. Valerie grabs Rick again. She does the buddy breathing with him until they reach the surface. We got to the top and popped out and everything was fine. And I looked at my instructor and she took off her mask and it was my date. It was Valerie. And the idea just suddenly occurred in my mind, you know, if... This woman is willing to risk her life to save mine on essentially the first date, then maybe I better take her seriously. Mm -hmm. 
I was pretty ticked off at this point. Like, who is this man I'm on a date with, buddy breathing with? It didn't bring me closer to him, but it brought him closer to me. By the time they're in the car headed back, though, Valerie has calmed down. The state isn't exactly going as planned, but it still seems salvageable. He has a cute giggle, and I think he said, yeah, thanks for saving me, or something like that. And I, I don't think we spoke about it very much. It's always been a fun story that we tell when people say, how did you meet? But I don't think we had some deep, dark discussion about, I saved your life, you know, because to me, it's what you do. He was my buddy, and I just needed to save him and help him. And uh, we've been doing that for each other for a long time now. Over their 25 years of marriage, Rick says, Valerie's level-headedness and what he calls her consistent adult intelligence have been perfect complements to his own propensity for risk and whimsy. She's a capable, competent, sensible, practical, you know, really very powerful woman are, are you know, the things that have, have always held my attraction and love. It's interesting that it started with those moments. If you're going to do something extreme, you have to be ready to see someone's extreme side for the good or the bad and be open-minded to that because that might show you aspects of each other that you never would have seen early on and maybe you would have walked away and, you know, we're both awfully glad we didn't. Through our married life, we've had ups and downs and both with ourselves and family and friends and, you know, I think we always stand by each other and we, you know, we swam by each other and, you know, (laughs) we're with each other underwater, we're with each other above water too. The bond that develops in these trying moments, it's a unique thing. And in Valerie and Rick's case, a lasting thing. In thinking about other couples who've met under extreme circumstances, there was one story in particular that really stuck out for me. And it's a story that happened right here in Boston. A quick aside, this story contains some graphic details. My name is Roseanne Stoya Materia. For Roseanne, as for many people around Boston, the Boston Marathon was an annual spring tradition. She and her friends would gather at the finish line downtown to witness and celebrate the runners' final strides. It's just such a fanfare. It's loud. It's so energetic. It's people cheering, stopping, talking, bumping into friends that you haven't seen, and you're lifted by the crowd. April 15, 2013, I had two friends that were running. Roseanne and her friends are at a bar just off the finish line. They order some drinks and make their way outside to get right up close to where the runners are passing by. One of the runners she's looking for is her friend Jen. When we first stepped outside, there were a lot of people, but we were able to find like two spaces to the left of this big postal mailbox. And we were standing there for a couple minutes, but I was having trouble seeing over the mailbox to be able to see Jen coming down the street. And I had noticed right on the other side, there was a little spot that I could squeeze into. So I did that. At this point, I've separated myself from my friends and I'm standing there and you basically can't hear anything because people are cheering so loudly for anybody and everybody. And all of a sudden there's an explosion, a loud noise down to the left. You could hear a pin drop. It was so crazy. The whole entire crowd went silent. I stood up on that bottom railing of the barricade and looked down to the left. Everybody was looking. Everybody's head turned to the left. You could hear a little murmur in the crowd. And it's weird because it was only like 10 to 12 seconds. I was like, 
I've been here how many times, and they've never had celebratory cannons. All the elite runners had come in hours ago. Why would they have these cannons now? A gentleman to my right yelled, quick, get in the street. I turned to my right and ran, um, but I didn't get very far. I took two steps off of that railing and basically saw two flashes of white light at my feet, and then it just went blank. When the explosion happened, it spun me around and landed me facing Boylston Street, sitting basically on the edge of the sidewalk now with my left leg fully extended in front of me on the street and my right leg tucked under me as if I was sitting on my shin. I was probably going to die here if I did not get help. Somehow, I still had my purse. I don't know how. I lost my cell phone. My sunglasses had been blown off my face. I basically kind of like put my arms up and was like kind of reaching for someone to help. And as the smoke was clearing, this college student came out of the smoke. It was just almost very angelic of how he came out and he's like, you need to get out of here. And I'm like, I can't, I don't have a leg. Luckily for me, he had a couple of um, beers beforehand, so he definitely had some, uh, what do they call it, um, liquid courage. A police officer rushes over to Roseanne. A group forms around her. So Shana, the police officer, you know, was going through the list of questions and trying to make me stay coherent as well. But one of her questions to me was, um, you know, are you here to see your husband running the race? And... I guess in my sassiness, I snapped back, like, what does this have to do with it, with anything? You know, no, I was watching Friends. I don't have a husband. The team works quickly. They load Roseanne and another bombing victim into the back of a police transport vehicle. There isn't time to wait for an open ambulance. It's pitch black inside. Two firefighters are on their knees back to back. Each is trying to keep themselves and the victims stable en route to the ER. I wanted to know if we were on Starro Drive, because that's the road I would take to get to Mass General Hospital. So I'm trying to tell them how to get to the hospital of my choice, let alone them taking me to the closest one. I'm like, I want to go to Mass General Hospital. Roseanne's firefighter is holding onto the plastic backboard she's lying on, steadying himself against a wall and gripping the tourniquet that's keeping her alive. And now here I am throwing a fourth thing in, asking him to hold my hand. But he did. More of Roseanne's story after the break. At the hospital, Roseanne is rushed into surgery. Her right leg is amputated above the knee. In these first few days, her family and friends keep talking about this firefighter who was with her from the moment she was on the street all the way to the ER, the one who was holding her hand in the back of the police van. I'm hearing this buzz about, you know, the firefighter who helped me. And, um, you know, he showed up on Tuesday to make sure I was alive, but really didn't meet anybody. Just wanted to check in with the hospital. And Wednesday, he shows back up in the waiting room with 
firefighter T-shirts for anybody and everybody that's in there. Roseanne's mother becomes a little obsessed with this guy. My mom is like, he is so handsome. And I just said to her, I'm like, Mom, you've got to be kidding me. I think I might have swore um, that you are trying to set me up and I've just been blown up, really. Like, this is the last thing on my mind right now. As Roseanne begins her difficult recovery, this guy keeps showing up to see her in the hospital. Eventually, she's transferred to a rehab center. Throughout all of this, the firefighter keeps coming. But he's very elusive as well, because he's very quiet. He's very behind the scenes. In his mind, he was just doing his job that day. But yet, you know, my friends again have taken him under the wing and my family loves him. And if he's in the room and someone new comes in, he'd walk out and kind of disappear for a little bit, but then he'd reappear. A day or two before Roseanne is released from rehab, they have their first moment together, one-on-one. He has a bag with him and he takes out his army helmet because he's an army veteran. And um, he had been over to Iraq three different times, and he presents me with his army helmet that he had himself gone and decorated with fun things like flip, like little flip-flops and sunglasses, beach scenes. And he had, like, gone to Michael's um, craft store and bought these little things and then glued them all to his helmet and presented it to me and just said, you know, if you're ever scared, you know, put this on and, you know, this will help keep you safe. It couldn't have been more touching, endearing, shocking, probably the best thing I've ever received as a gift. I mean, you say he was just doing his job by showing up that many times. That's not his job. I know. You got to tell him that. (laughs) I know it's not his job. Uh, What he did that day was not his job. As Roseanne prepares to head home, she can't imagine facing the world again without his support. And so, taking her first steps out of the rehab center... Who's there? The fireman. Some weeks go by. Roseanne is trying to resume her life, but she needs help getting to her various medical appointments. Who's there to help? The fireman. His name is Mike. They're spending more and more time together. She learns that Mike is a Yankees fan, a New York Giants fan. They talk about music and go for car rides and have meals together. At one point, Roseanne takes part in a People magazine feature on the survivors of the Boston Marathon bombing. Mike is there with her at the photo shoot. A few days later, Roseanne does a phone interview with the writer. We go through the conversation, we go through the interview, and at the end, she says, you know, I am wondering what's going on with the two of you. And I said, well, I said, off the record, I'm wondering the same thing. and But if anything happens, you know, my, my mother's wondering the same thing, too. Um, and if anything happens, I will let you know. But until then, you know, I have no idea. We're just helping each other out. The writer confesses. She had asked Mike the same question at the photo shoot. After Roseanne takes the call with the writer, she and Mike go to one of her appointments together. And we're sitting there. And at this point, I'm like, I can't deal with it anymore. Like, I need to know. Again, I'm a realist. Like, no sugarcoating. Like, I need to know one way or the other what's going on. So I start off slow, and and I ask him, like, so I did the telephone interview yesterday with People Magazine. And he's like, oh, how did it go? 
And I'm like, good. And I had to tell him about, you know, the conversation I had with her. And, and then I said, but she said at the end that she asked you what was going on with us. And I said, she asked me the same question. I said, what, what did you tell her? And he goes, well, what did you tell her? And I said, I asked you first, so you need to go first. So this heart-to-heart conversation happens, and it's clear. There is something special here for both of them. We both wanted to make sure that it wasn't, as some people would call, like a Florence Nightingale syndrome or whatever. And so, honestly, it just kind of evolved from there where uh, he's like, you know, I really would like to take you out on a real date, you know, because we've been going to lunch and stuff. But he's like, I want to come pick you up. We'll go out. By June or July, only a few months after the bombing, Roseanne and Mike, this guy she first met when he was saving her life, are a legit couple. Their first official date happens over Chinese food. Kiss goodnight? Yes, there was a kiss goodnight. After Roseanne and Mike became a couple, it became a public thing. People talked about them, wrote about them. I didn't know either one of them personally, but I worried a little from afar because it seemed like there was so much pressure how do you go into a relationship like this when the public is so hungry for this fairy tale ending? There was this public need, I feel like, after um, the bombing to pull beautiful stories out of a horrible situation. And I remember the more I read, you know, there was a story about the two of you when you started dating and that you had fallen in love. And it was like it made everybody else feel good, right? That there had been happiness brought out of that. But with that comes... I would imagine, a a great deal of pressure. Yes, I I would say there's definitely been a great deal of pressure. But I think, in my mind, I don't really care what people think. So I kind of do my own thing. Mike is a little bit more conscientious of that. And so I think he struggles with it more, even still today. Roseanne and Mike were super conscious about not moving too fast, not getting wrapped up in the emotions. They wanted to make sure their bond was real and deep. That's why we waited four years to get married. We, you know, had several discussions about it. And, you know, around us, other survivors were either getting married or divorced. Because it was such a chaotic time in life that certain things, certain things seemed like the right thing to do at that right moment. But as you get further away from it, you realize, no, it's not or it wasn't or it shouldn't have happened or whatever it might be. I think knowing that we had survived the four years out, that it was time. Our connection is not based on the marathon bombing by any means. Is it where we met? Yep. Do we make jokes about how he picked me up off the street? Yep. You know, but the further we get away from that day, the less and less that topic really comes up between the two of us. We're fully embedded in life. We talk about where we want to go on vacation, what trips we want to take. We have two dogs, and they're our entertainment these days, and we wonder how we ever lived without them prior to this. In that moment, in that moment of great fear and tragedy, you were project managing, you were directing Absolutely. You were quintessentially you in all these incredible ways. And he was quintessentially himself in that he somehow turned two hands into four, and had the empathy in that moment to go beyond just the practical. And and I just was thinking, you know, I went into this interview thinking, like, the way in which we are in these acute moments 
is perhaps not the best representation of ourselves, but the way you tell it, it was actually like a crystallized version of what the two of you <laughs> were drawn to each other for. Yes, I, I truly believe that. He's just an amazing person. I won't say I think it's a miracle, but I will say I think I'm very fortunate. As much as Roseanne might hate to admit it, her mom, from those first moments in the hospital, was kind of right about Mike. Is your mom smug? Ugh, yeah, we don't talk. I'm not, I don't even want to talk about it. I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. Well, we've arrived at the end of our season, which means it's time to bid goodbye to our brave single friend, Aaron. As you know, we've been tracking Aaron's attempts to find a partner. And by the way, if you've been listening to these episodes as they come out, you should know something. You're pretty much getting Aaron's story in real time. Like, we're reporting all of this as it's happening. I wanted to bring Aaron into the studio one last time to talk about what this journey's been like for her and what she's learned about dating and about herself. Hey there. Hey. Erin admitted to me that when we first started following her, she let herself believe that her dating life would get better fast. Like I'd have some sort of magic answer for her. Yeah, this is this is gonna this is it, you know? And then after the first activity of reaching out to friends and acquaintances, I was like, oh, it's still terrible. It really bummed me out. And I was like, God. But then I was like, Erin, it's just another part of the process. When I first met you, it was because you had written in about having major dating fatigue. You were like all set with apps. And I'm wondering, are you still a person who has major dating fatigue and is feeling that way about having to look? I feel lighter. That's the first word I can think of now about dating than I did when I wrote you, which was about a year ago. Even though... I was on the apps and there was a level of rejection and frustration. I felt like it was it was all leading to, you know, this project. And so it made it less heavy. Erin says she learned a bunch of things in reflecting on her dating life as part of the podcast. She realized that she needed to be more outgoing and to take more risks. That she should maintain a more positive attitude in dating and in life. And that she should never try to be someone she's not on a dating app. You're like, well, this guy seems like he would want me to be this kind of person, so I'm going to write it in this way. And this guy seems like he would want me to be this kind of person. And so I really feel like I lost a sense of myself. And I think um, that's the biggest thing that I can say is just take a break from trying to be something and trying to find somebody. A few weeks ago, Erin came to this love letters party we hosted at a bar. It was to celebrate the 10th anniversary of my column. Erin got a little charge from being recognized as the Erin from the podcast. I had fans, and I was like, but I was like, I have fans because I'm myself. Yes. And like, I'm fan worthy. Totally. And I don't, and I can say that without feeling like I have to be like, oh no, you know, because I'm like, yeah, like, I'm doing something that's interesting, and there are people that are cool. They're, they're, the people that I met who are the fans are fascinating in their own right, and, but they have similar stories of struggles and breakups and frustrations. So it was nice to connect with them and feel like, 
they they know my story a little, you know, a little my story, and now I want to know their story. And this, I think, gets us to perhaps Erin's biggest takeaway, how much it helped to have a team behind her, rooting for her, listening, lending support, just being there. Like, I said to someone recently, like, wouldn't it be great if there was a service where there was, like, Queer Eye that you could hire? And, like, wouldn't it be great if we could hire cheerleaders to just remind us why we're awesome? Because I think we forget that. And that's, you know, that's what doing this podcast, like, it helped me remember what makes me awesome. For single people, it often feels like we're doing everything by ourselves. Dating, especially, can feel so lonely. Erin's experience is a great reminder that we do need cheerleaders. We need a team, a crew, to be there with love, support, empathy, and commiseration, sometimes with chocolate or bourbon. Oh, and one more thing about Erin. I'm not going to pretend that her team, aka us, deserves any credit for this, but she shared a few details about how it's going with Art Dad, that guy she'd had some successful dates with. They've had some more, including this big fundraiser gala for his work that he invited her to. I get there. I managed to get there in Parallel Park really well. And um, I had to cross the street in high heels. And I was just like, please don't fall in the middle of the street. Uh, and I did a really good job navigating that. And I met, he was out front waiting for me, which was really nice. As the gala is winding down, Art Dad has to rush home to relieve the babysitter. But then he's like, well, let me walk you to your car. I'm like, okay. And so we we get to my car and, you know, and he's like, okay. And so like we hug and I'm, I'm like in my car and me, I'm just like, he's got to get to the babysitter, you know? And he's like, well, can I kiss you? And I was like, yeah. Because it was more me replying to myself, like stop being such a, so uptight and just remember like where you are and, and the person you're with. It was lovely, and then he went to relieve the babysitter, and I went home, and that was great. Soon after, Aaron goes to his house. He makes her dinner, farm-fresh chicken, spinach, and some wine. She has a great time. Aaron is trying to be conscious of keeping all of this in perspective— of keeping the stakes low. She's trying to simply be in the present and enjoy it for what it is. We both want to see each other again. And, and like, I know I do 100%, and I'm pretty sure he does. I'm trying not to overthink it either. I'm trying to just really, I'm trying to, to ride the happiness right now and allow myself to feel that. Because, as you know, it, <laughs> it's rare. So right now I'm just, I'm, I'm happy and I'd like to see him more. Good for Erin for enjoying the happy and keeping it all in perspective. I have to say, she's taught me so much this season, as have all of the other people I've talked to. I have to admit, as a person who is often single, I used to think that finding love just comes effortlessly for some people. And by that, I mean other people. 
But every story of people meeting that I heard this season had this in common. It did take work and attention and real action. And from these stories, I know that meeting someone, finding love, can happen anywhere. On a work dinner at TGI Fridays, or at a hair salon, or 100 feet underwater, or even on an app. When I think about it that way, I can't help but feel pretty hopeful. You can read more about Roseanne Storia Materia in her memoir. It's called Perfect Strangers. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. The podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Amy Padula. Audio mixing, sound design, and mastering by Ned Porter. Music by APM. Our executive producers are Scott Hellman and Janice Page. Special thanks to Linda Henry and Brian McGrory. And a big thank you to all of you for listening to season two of this podcast. We plan to be back with season three in the fall, so stay tuned. In the meantime, you can always reach us at loveletters@boston.com or tweet at us using the hashtag loveletterspodcast. We're online at loveletters.show. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. And remember, I'm always on your team. <laughs>